Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the CLT is coming up on April 13th. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. All right, welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today is going to be unique, Mr. Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain. And so if you are new to the classical uh, education movement, the classical renewal movement, you may not have yet read the liberal arts tradition, uh, which in my opinion has, has kind of become the mere Christianity uh, of classical Christian education within this renewal movement. Uh, Kevin, Ravi, uh, welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm I'm kind of a newbie still. I'm about five years in, six years into kind of the classical renewal movement. And I, I can't tell you the number of people who recommended the liberal arts tradition to me. Uh, I, I got to admit, just from the outset, I didn't actually read it until last week. Uh, and then I read the entire thing in about 24 hours, kind of devoured it. It was amazing. And after finishing it, I get why this book is what it is. I'm wondering if, if you knew or at the outset that this would become such a pinnacle work in the classical renewal movement. Um, what was the development process like in the research and how did the book come about? No, we had no idea that it was going to be such a... Um, that anybody was going to read it. That, <laughs> that, <laughs> that it was even going to be a book. It, it started out as just kind of a, a white paper with the Occupant Fellowship, um, with a, a group of educa- educators, classical educators, really wanted to sketch out the main contours of a philosophy of Christian classical education. It became more than a sketch, I guess um, you could say. So th- there were a number of things that stood out to me as, as a first time, a first read through it. But I'm wondering before we get started, you know, CLT has, has a broad kind of base of listeners. Um, many are not in a classical school at all. Um, you know, many are, are within a Catholic school that maybe, you know, is kind of trying to figure out how it connects to this classical renewal movement. Um, a, a lot within the homeschool world that like traditional education, but but don't quite get the whole classical thing. I'm wondering either Kevin or Ravi, how would you just define even what is classical education or what is classical Christian education? Well, um, I mean, there's a couple of different answers we can give to that. One of them uh, I'll give, um, you know, with both of those groups in mind, that classical education is the answer to the question of how Christians are going to educate their children for most of the entire Christian tradition. It's so the fact that it becomes a unique, you know, kind of niche within the uh, the, the Christian school movement or something um, is just because we're rediscovering the great tradition that really belongs to, um, you know, we call it Western tradition, but really it's to um, to the church in the Western tradition and more broadly um, to Western tradition in general. But it really is just the tradition of education that's been handed down to us mm-hmm. um, over uh, the, the past uh, almost couple dozen centuries. How and when did it did it get lost? Man, I mean, goodness, there's just so many different stages of loss and stages of development. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I think you could say around the 
1870s or so, you know, you start to see uh, uh, pulling back from traditional kinds of Christian education. You see changes in the universities in the 1890s where it makes it untenable to, you know, if you think about grade school, secondary school is preparatory for the university, then um, the changes happening in the universities um, kind of have ripple effects, the schools. So I think all throughout the early 1900s, you see it dwindling and, you know, evaporating. Catholic schools, I think, stick around the longest. The, the, a lot of the Jesuit schools sticking to something like Christian classical education up through probably the 1960s. And then that's just, to, that's not even to say that it was all very uniform either. And there's uh, lots of different expressions of these things in, um, in America or Europe. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention the, uh, the, the enormous influence of American progressive education, um, both here and we've exported it all around the world um, in the 20th century. You know, education in mass culture um, was way different than before, before the 19th century. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons why I chose the 1870s is I, I think that you do see the influence of compulsory state education um, that's starting to come around then. I think in Britain, is that right? Um, and so because of that, that's going to displace the primacy of church schools or other forms of school, private schools otherwise. Oh, so you start off the book in an unusual place. I think that, you know, the perception may be, okay, this is going to be a book about classical education. They're going to start off talking about Latin and Greek or something. You don't start there at all. Um, and in fact, you go into a great deal of detail about what you call gymnastics. And uh, you're not just talking about gymnastics. You're talking about something broader than that. You're talking about the development of the whole person, the physical body. Why did you put gymnastics in the beginning of the book? And, and how is this kind of a neglected part of classical education? Well, I'm going to let Ravi answer part of this question, but just something to the first part of your question about what are, what are perceptions that people have about classical education? I think it's, you know, they think that it's just a younger version of like a classics degree at a university or maybe, you know, mm-hmm. images of the Emperor's Club come to mind or something of like that. It's very, it's, it's only literary it's antiquarian and it's um, only interested with with the yeah, Greco-Roman antiquity. I think that's kind of perception that people have um, have about it. Certainly, no um, math or science or arts or maybe not athletics or things like that. I think that, that is a common perception. So people sometimes get surprised when they read the book that we say more than just uh, language arts in there. But yeah, so why why do we start? I mean, we don't just start with gymnastic, right? We start with music, uh, musical education, and uh, with with piety as well. Yeah. So there's good questions. I mean, why do we um, believe education is grounded in piety, and you know that shaping the soul um, is important to be done through story and song? Um, and so those are those are really good questions. But if you want to talk about gymnastic in particular, I think one of the points is that. Education is often talked about as an ivory tower, you know, and people are disconnected from reality. And there's uh, there's a way that that may be kind of endemic to the past uh, 500, 600, sorry, 400 years of education or so since the 1600s. Um, th- there's a kind of a detachment from reality. I mean, even Socrates was concerned that the more that we had writing um, the more people would be boorish and um, detached from reality. And I like they'd only care about books and not about living conversations or about. Exactly. You know. um, and I think we see that it's the ivory tower form of the academy. 
And um, I think that's actually why um, Socrates or Plato, you know, emphasize the formative role of embodied education. Um, so the gymnastic is kind of picking up on this, the way that we use our bodies shapes them, shapes the way we think, shapes the way we play, shapes the way we love. And if we don't learn to use our bodies correctly, um, you know, everything we do with our mind will be deformed in some way. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those insights from the ancients that you don't realize the ancients are so different from us and that we actually may have, they may have resources to help us solve issues that we think are our problems today, like the ivory tower Academy. Well, one of the lines that you repeat at least a couple of times in the book, and I think the one that's going to stay with me is uh, you say that the culture of a school is as important as uh, the content in the curriculum itself. Talk to me about, about what is a healthy, flourishing school culture. Um, I, I, I got to tell you, I've been amazed over the past five years with CLT. I, I probably toured 100 or more secondary schools. And having spent my previous 10 years you know, in a public school environment, it's really encouraging. You know, I, I always say the best case for classical education is meeting one of these students because it's amazing what y'all do with these students. Um, talk to us about, about a healthy, flourishing school culture. What does that look like? Where does that stem from? Yeah, um, and just just to point the connection between them, that the, the, the culture is really what drives things like curriculum um, and, and content and, and instruction. I know Ravi will probably say more about that, but um, I imagine some of the things you probably saw is you found yourself having um, interesting conversations probably on the spot with, with the children in the school where they um, knew how to interact with you as a person, um, they knew how to express ideas um, articulately, things like that. So this idea where um, a school culture um, is, is actually a flourishing community that's uh, built on um, uh, respect, I think, and, and attention. We talk about that at, uh, at my school here, that we're cultivating um, obedience for sure, but also respect and attention to where you're able to follow, to listen, you're engaged with people when you're speaking with them and you respect them as persons. Um, the, the teachers do that with the youngest children where they treat them um, like persons. Um, and uh, the, the children are raised with certain habits of interacting with people as persons, greeting uh, people when they come into the building, speaking to them while looking at them in the face, um, expressing yourself uh, clearly with, um, with complete, complete sentences that make sense, right? So we do those, those kinds of things. And that, that sounds kind of funny, but that's a, a small thing. But you, know, you think about how that, that kind of, that culture is so striking and so different from so many places we see, you know, outside of the walls of our schools today. Another part of the book that stood out to me was the, the focus on music. And, uh, you know, obviously anybody hears music, you think of what you listen to and you turn the radio on. Music in the classical sense is, is, is much bigger than that. Um, so can you talk about what, what is music in this tradition and then how does it get absorbed in, into the life of a school? I'd say that might be the most important thing. It does get absorbed into the life of the school. So the musical education, I use the, the phrase, it's a um, poetic, um, pre-critical education that comes through imitative practice. Um, it's, the, um, it's all the creative ways that the teachers, or at least the way they would talk about the creative ways they would teach uh, the, the disciplines by um, you, would, you would learn about um, historical figures and events by reenacting um, a scene from history where you enter into the um, enter into the characters. You would learn, you know, I think about our, our natural uh, history study, you would learn about the seasons by 
um, by being outside in them, um, by the, this kind of um, embodied shared uh, shared experience. And it really fits together the gymnastic education, what we call piety there, that any of the, um, you don't learn them discursively through you're reading and studying about them in books or having chapter headings or things like that, but it, it comes through, uh, through doing things, through imitative practice. Well, I mean, the other thing that I think about is participation, you know, and that's that you are experiencing things um, by, and, and, and you're learning by not kind of like an empirical experience of things, uh, like a disconnected observation, but by actually just um, participating with things, whether it's the garden as Kevin does at the ecclesial schools and, you know, a lot of Christian classical schools do, or whether it's, you know, games um, that you learn through, um, through play. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the insight that the ancients had with the idea of music. So music, just for those of you that may not have heard this before, um, for the ancients meant everything that was inspired by the muses. So nine muses, so you've got um, muses that inspire everything from history um, and epic poetry to astronomy. So um, astronomy appears in the curriculum twice as to be studied from a pre-critical poetic point of view, as Kevin pointed out, where it might be just looking up at the stars and naming the constellations. Um, yeah. And that appears again later in the curriculum in, as one of the mathematical liberal arts. And uh, both are valued. And that's one of the things that's really impressive about um, the history of Christian classical education is that they didn't um, say we only value the analytical or we only value the pre-critical poetic. They were both bound up together. But I think it makes sense that the pre-critical poetic uh, has to precede the analytical. And if you don't have it, then mm. You're just spinning spider webs about you know things that students can't understand because it shapes the it shapes the love it it, um, it kind of points the uh, the gaze of the students' affections what they want to want to know you know we talk about um, awakening wonder and mm -hmm. you know, having students who have a love of learning where the musical education is where that's cultivated um, it's also where the, um, the the capacity to engage with reality I don't know how to say to say that more where you'd say, how come uh, students don't get a lot out of um, reading this book? Or why don't they get a lot out of their scientific studies? Well, have you actually done the work on the heart, on, on the, the, the capacity to, the receptive capacity uh, of uh, the intellect? Not just the ability to get, to get right answers, but the ability actually to perceive, to look, to gaze, and to want to do it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Jeremy. You ever read Charles Taylor? Um, so he's got a phrase that talks about the buffered self. And, you know, I think a lot of us experience, <laughs> you know, um, it's like we're in an episode of The Office where, you know, we're all speaking to a camera as opposed to interacting with the people that we're, you know, we're in the room with or that we're around. And, I, and sometimes we experience all of reality that way, like through this disconnected lens. And, you know, the, being able to participate with to, to experience reality, to like a participate in reality is, um, is I, I think, something that has to be kind of lived out from the youngest years. And if, you, if your basic mode of education is disconnected from reality, man, then that's how you create kids that grew up, you know, living in isolated cells that can't connect with each other. At least I would say this, the uh, kind of key pedagogical insight of classical education is finding ways to connect people to, to reality, to the real. So, you know, why do we like to read, you know, real books instead of textbooks? Well, because that's the real author, that's the real, the real language, the real literary experience. And so the, the teacher then has to find out a way to make that introduction. Why do we start 
the study of natural um, science with natural philosophy and natural history by, uh, or sorry, with natural history actually being um, in the natural world and observing its, mm. uh, its changes and seeking, you know, patterns and regularities. It's that idea. It's, it's connecting people to what's real um, as the kind of foundational pedagogy. We've got a big chunk of our subscriber base for the podcast are, are teachers in the public school arena. Uh, the whole concept of classical is still kind of new, uh, I think, for, for many of them. If they're anything like like me, math is actually one of the, the, the most uh, substantial differences in terms of why we do math. Uh, I was the annoying kid in middle school and high school that wanted someone to tell me why we had to do this. And they would they would tell me because we would use it. And I knew they were lying. And I, I think that they were lying even now. I don't really use it. My wife does our finances. I get by just fine not doing any math ever for the most part of my daily life. Um, nobody ever told me that there was any purpose for math outside of using it. Um, but, but you start your math section, you're talking about uh, Plato and that the, the utilitarian purposes of math were a distant second to something much greater. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. I mean... <clears throat> We talk about wonder, work, wisdom, and worship as, you know, not merely uh, purposes for math, but as purposes for all of Christian classical education. Yeah, Plato is, he's very aware that math is useful for a general, um, and he needs to know how to array his troops or useful for the shopkeeper. Um, But he says that's not really why math is fascinating or why he thinks that the best nature should study math. Um, He thinks that the strongest students and not even... any of the students that aspire to kind of um, leadership roles or um, to grow in wisdom, they need to study math because it uh, acquaints us with truth. It acquaints us with justice. It acquaints us um, with mysteries um, and points us to deeper questions. So, I mean, this is, he's, he's getting this in some ways from the Pythagoreans who um, thought math was very mystical and, I think a lot of 20th century physics has come back to vindicate those points of views. You know, it was Heisenberg who said, I could make no more progress in um, theoretical physics until I studied Greek natural philosophy. And, and part of what's going on there is, is the Greeks struggling with number and its significance. It does really reshape the conversation in a math classroom when you admit that it's actually not all that useful. You know, I had a, <laughs> you know, I teach calculus one and two and physics, you know, all these hard classes. Um, it's, you know, some students, when they've graduated and done well on all their APs, they've gone to a college, and got five, um, five classes worth of credit in physics and calculus. So we teach hard stuff. But I, I once had a, uh, a guest lecturer come in. He manages a team of engineers at, Lock, at Lockheed Martin. And he was a, he did his, he's a phys, PhD in physics and did his you know postdoctoral work at CERN in Switzerland. He's a brilliant guy. He had also raised a bunch of um, math teams to compete at state, and they won state. And he's a he's a smart guy. Um, and you would think um, that he would come in and defend how useful the math, AP calculus, and AP physics that I teach is. But one of the first things he said to the students is, even though I'm a physicist that leads a ten- team of engineers for a high tech company, I never use calculus. Says I never use calculus in my day to day work, <laughs> um, and you know, so you're right on, Jeremy, with that intuition. I mean, I think a lot of engineers need to know how to use the software that allows them to do their work. Um, and at some point, it's good for you to have learned it 
because you need to know if the stuff's spitting out crazy garbage or if it's spitting out good good things. But but you can also have other people check it for you. But the things that math really makes you good at is learning how to detect truth from falsehood, learning how to see patterns and identify things. It also raises all kinds of questions about the relationship of the physical world to the world of ideas. Um, you know, the Pythagoreans always noticed that the tuning systems that they would use, which are mathematical in nature, and they never fit perfectly what um, uh, a good tuning is. You can see, you know, um, Bach is, is dealing with this in the well-tempered clavier. And um, in the 1700s, they're still thinking about their fit between mathematics and the real world. And these questions have always um, made people wonder about the transcendent. And Augustine would say, pointed pointed you beyond the math itself to the author of the math, to God. So, I mean, figure out how to raise those questions in the classroom context and organize high-level, high-performing math classes to be able to interact with the great thinkers like Pascal and Leibniz or others um, so that they can see, wondered at the math, They this, this math led them to worship. Uh, that's quite an exciting prospect for uh, Christians in education. Question for Kevin. So Kevin, when the book comes out, uh, 2013, re-release, I guess, in maybe 2015, you're, you're the academic dean, you're at the Geneva School, but since then you've, you've left and you started something called the Ecclesial Schools Initiative. Um, tell us about that. What, what is the goal there? How long have y'all been, been around and how are you doing? Well, I'll start with the, kind of the last question that we're doing, doing really well. It's been, it's been a crazy year to launch a school. Uh, but it's been um, it's been great. We have about 40 students in grades K through five in our first our first campus. Um, we hope to have a network of about eight campuses across the Metro Orlando area. And the goal really is our tagline: We're expanding access to extraordinary Christian education. Um, for us, the word extraordinary means classical education. And um, it's it's either been um, it's been kind of a value added educational option for re- well resourced families <laughs> to this point in a lot of places. And we wanted to uh, find a way um, to, to open up that access to classical education. And, but we also wanted to find a, a way in the, the second edition that you've been reading, the liberal arts tradition, there's a lot of talk about um, the culture of the church and how that influenced the curriculum that we received kind of in the, the kind of great Western tradition. Um, and seeing we, we've been involved in Christian education for a long time, but see how you can reconnect uh, Christian classical education to the life of the church, um, especially with with issues about formation, uh, moral and spiritual formation, and how that happens. If it's not just going to be a set of analytical ideas, you know, if you're talking about faith formation, just write ideas about God or about truth, but actually um, practices and formative relationships and mentoring, where does that happen? And that drives us to this community, um, the community of the church. So I think Ravi might have mentioned it earlier. There's a, a, um, a section in the book um, called, uh, I always get this wrong, uh, calling, culture. calling Culture and Curriculum, <laughs> and how this idea of the sense of calling um, to, uh, to raise children, to teach them, uh, takes its direction um, from a culture that you want to pass down to the next generation of people. And of course that um, results in a curriculum and they're all bound together. And so in one sense, when you try to just, as we've seen in the renewal of classical education, trying to reaccess this, this curriculum, what culture did this belong to? And what culture was it trying to possess or, or trying, to, um, trying to pass along? 
And what was the calling of people who dwelt in this culture that they would want to hand down this curriculum? And it's driven uh, uh, me to found this initiative called the Ecclesial Schools Initiative that tries to answer the questions of culture and calling that sit behind the classical curriculum. Uh, well, it's super important work. Uh, we're, we're grateful for what you're doing there, Kevin. Um, the question we always ask our guests on the show, we're, we're interested, we love books here. Uh, of course, CLT, we start every morning as a company reading out loud together. I'm wondering what you're doing uh, just in terms of reading on your own. And I'm also wondering if there was maybe one work for each of you, one text that was maybe most influential that you would recommend to our audience. They're doing the musical education every morning by reading out loud together. I love that. I'm reading the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis again right now because um, I strongly suspect that the NICE is somehow running the entire world culture right now. <laughs> like if we look at the politics of 2020, I don't know if you want to edit that out or not. <laughs> <laughs> the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments really running the show um, right now. I had to read that again for that reason. Like, am I living in this dystopian future? I, I yeah. I am. And I'm watching um, Merlin. Um, Are so. you really? <laughs> it's Arthurian all around. <laughs> the uh, BBC miniseries. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That is so fun. You know, honestly, there's another, there's, there's a stack of books on my nightstand right now. There is the, that, uh, that hideous strength from the space trilogy. Hmm. There is mathematics for the non-mathematician <laughs> that I'm reading. Um, but then there's also uh, the after virtue by Alistair McIntyre. And that book is actually done like a certain understanding of how important practices and communities are in developing, um, uh, I mean, developing intellectually, if I use the phrase like developing a social imaginary and how decisive that is and things like education and uh, the, the kind of moral life. So um, after virtue, I think kind of made me think about things in a certain way that um, resonates with the way we understand education. And Ravi, what about you? Is there uh, one particular text that, that was kind of most influential in your journey into classical education or one worth you would recommend to our audience? Oh, man, into classical education. I'm sorry. That, that was a different. That, um, well, thing. I'll just say Abolition of Man yeah. is very influential for Kevin. So, yeah, Abolition of Man, <laughs> I was going to say. It wasn't influential. It was the, uh, the flow chart of my life. There was that led to Abolition of Man, and I took that turn and went in this direction. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And, um, that there is uh, I remember Ken Myers gave a talk on that. Um, I don't know, 2011 or so at SCL that I thought was very helpful for us kind of for, for me for helping um, form our vision, shape what Kevin and I were doing collectively, mm -hmm. maybe 2009 even. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's, you know, a great book to start with. If you want to get at the heart of Christian classical education, I've been reading that. And I think that's a good one. And um, man, if you if you guys haven't read Remy Bragg's Kingdom of Man, that's an excellent <laughs> book. Um, and I think it's even he's a professor at the Sorbonne and in Munich. Uh, one of them's emeritus. Yeah. So I don't know if they both are, but um, I think he has the very similar analysis to Lewis. But he's writing um, with a with a different purpose in mind, almost like a Charles Taylor history of thought um, mm. kind of scope. He's that's an excellent book. Tyler, I think as I'm thinking back about the, the various guests we've had on the program, um, The Abolition of Man, it seems like it's come up maybe more than any other book. Kevin, Ravi, what an honor uh, to, to sit down with you both. Uh, thanks for the work that you're doing and uh, hope to have you back on the program in the future. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. Mm-hmm.